Red Sea, the Indian Ocean, to get where they needed to go. They didn't have a train ticket. They didn't even have a bicycle. They were wearing sandals. And if you're like me, one little pebble gets underneath my foot and I'm on my knees. These men were asked to walk the earth to, as Jesus says, teach them all, teach all nations, baptize them, tell them all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. So we know that God has a desire for the whole earth to understand the things he said. And what I'm focusing on here is how does God expect those desires to be accomplished? God has a lot of desires, a lot of his will that he would like to see done on the earth. And the question that we, we, we sure better have the same assumption as God does, how's that going to happen? It's real easy, real easy to think. and Because I'm a believer in miracles. Why can't God write that in the sky? Maybe a squirrel can actually knock out something. Morse code in a tree next to somebody sitting in a park. God doesn't do it that way. He sends people. He sent these guys to go change the world. And you know what? They did it. The book of Acts is a recording of Paul traveling all through his journeys, through most of the known world. One man. Now, Paul wasn't one of these guys standing here just yet. But when he became a disciple, the Lord sent him to all these different places. The other disciples did also in spreading this gospel. God uses people to get things done. Not just even just speaking, knocking on doors, speaking to people. If there are problems in the world, if there are injustices, if there are murderous regimes in the world, how is God going to deal with those things? The Old Testament is full of stories of where David, people like Samson, people like Gideon changed horrible nations, made them freer, broke off oppression, destroyed slavery like Moses did. God used people to accomplish those things. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, because that's just one verse of Scripture. The Bible tells us to get two or three witnesses to establish a truth. Acts chapter 1, this is the last words of Jesus before he is carried to heaven. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, And in Samaria, boy, if the Lord would just stop talking, our job would get easier. He keeps expanding. And unto the uttermost part of the earth. He is basically repeating, giving a very similar commandment that he gave at the end of Matthew. Once once you've received the Holy Ghost and you've been empowered and you're, you're energized, the Holy Spirit giving you the conviction, working with you through grace, I want you to go through the whole earth. God uses people. Those Think of the difference between the, the time when Jesus spoke and now. You, you literally, and most of you in here maybe even have one in your pocket where you can hit about four buttons. You can talk to any single person on the planet, close to it. I'm one of the only people you can't talk to. I don't carry one of those. I, I haven't got into that yet. The whole world, you can talk to somebody in Africa like that, in Asia. In Australia, these people 
think what they had and God still required, still asked, still depended on them to go into the whole earth. Now in looking at this idea, I simply want to get the mind of God at how he looks at the earth and what his expectations are. Because if you and I don't have the same world view, if we don't have the same assumptions about how God's will is going to work in the earth, it's very, very difficult for you and I to be on the same page with God. It's very difficult for us to be effective in his plan if we hold an assumption that is completely different from our Lord. If you've ever been around children, if you've been required to raise children, one of the better things and one of the most important things I've learned is it is very good to give specific instructions, expectations. If it is expected for them to have a jurisdiction in the house, if it is spelled out very clearly, there's a much better chance that they're going to be on the same page with you, that they're going to be able to follow it out to accomplish your directives. Same thing with the Lord. As we go through these stories, through the Bible and all his characters, God expects people to affect this earth and to affect it in huge ways. Let's just start running through a few of these things. Think of the guy Jonah. God wanted somebody to go to Nineveh, an enormous town. The Bible tells us there were 600,000 adults there. That's a big place. Huge says that it was three days' walk, three days' journey to get through it. Jonah was asked to go preach there. The Bible tells us that Jonah didn't even want to go. He complained to God. He said, if I go and if I preach to them, they'll repent and they'll, they'll turn to you. Now think of that. Jonah didn't even want those people to repent. God was not working with his sharpest tool that day. Jonah didn't have the attitude the desire for these people to even be reached. And yet, when Jonah tries to run, what's God's response? The Bible says that an enormous storm came up over this ship as he was sailing to Tarshish in, the, in a different direction. He wasn't going to Nineveh. And all those people on that ship, they started looking around. They knew something was very wrong. This storm very likely appeared out of nowhere because they started telling everybody, pray to any God that you have, We've got to get out of this. Now, if you've ever been on a train, a bus, a plane, what's one of the last things the person sitting next to you starts talking about? Reli- There's not many people that talk about religion. They don't like it. They immediately open a book. They turn away. They pretend they have sneezes. They don't want to talk about it. And everybody on this ship was asked, you better pray to the God, whoever you look to, because we're all going under. They were convinced the boat was going to be broken apart, and they were going down. When they find Jonah, he's in the bottom of the ship and he's sleeping. And they wake him up. And after uh, discussing with him, Jonah spills everything. The Bible even says he told them, God had told me I'm supposed to go to Nineveh, but I ran from the presence of God and I'm trying to get away. And they tell Jonah, you had better pray to the God that you serve and ask him for some forgiveness. And Jonah tells them, you better throw me overboard. That's how bad the storm was. And here's the miracle. They throw Jonah over, and what happens? Instantly, the Bible says the sea was calm. I think the people on that boat had some thoughts about somebody else is out there. That God directs us to this guy. They even cast lots. It fell on Jonah. He spills the beans about his 
life, his, his recent choices concerning God, they throw him overboard and the sea is calm. Problems are over. Well, as you know, God had a very large fish, a whale, that had followed that boat and it swallows Jonah. And there's a lot of people, a lot of people today on a Sunday that sit in churches that don't even believe this story. They don't even like to be thought of as people that believe that God really had a fish swallow this guy, Jonah. And as Pastor likes to point out, and I never thought of it until he did, even Jesus believed this story. People asked Jesus one day, tell us about the authority. Why do you get to say the things that you do, telling us the commandments that you do? And Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. He said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, he said, I will be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth after you kill me, and then I'll come back. Jesus believed the Jonah story. Well, of course he did. It's in our Bible. If in that story, if God had caused that whale to walk up on, out of the beach and go to Nineveh and preach the gospel, I would have to believe it if God said that. Now, obviously he didn't. But think of this. God could have. What's, more, what's a bigger miracle? A fish talking or a fish swallowing Jonah, holding him until Jonah finally decides, the Bible says, Lord, I'll pay my vows. As soon as Jonah repents, as soon as Jonah tells God, I'll do what you tell me to do. You know what the next verse in your Bible is? And the fish spat Jonah on the shore. Jonah probably didn't know where he was. He might have thought he was in the middle of the ocean. God had that fish waiting four feet from the sandy beach until he was ready to repent. And as soon as he did, out he went. Jonah goes into Nineveh. He preaches, they repent. And God used Jonah. Now, I don't know why. I don't know why for sure that God just wanted Jonah. Maybe it was because Jonah didn't want to go and he wanted to show him that his whole nation turned. Look at the results. If God had some bigger purpose to show people like us some 3,000 years later, whatever it was, God used a man who didn't even want to go and saved and turned an entire nation, an entire culture in the other direction toward God. That's very rare. Go search your history books. When nations start to the spiral downward, you can't find but a handful of nations, of cultures that have ever pulled themselves out of it and went back toward righteousness. Nineveh is one of those. Because of one man who followed God, did what he was told, and because Jonah didn't want to go, do you think Jonah was a great preacher of repentance? doesn't tell us. I have to kind of picture Jonah preaching that he probably wasn't the best. He wasn't Billy Graham. He may not have even been the best. But God wanted him to do it. He worked through that broken vessel, and a miracle happened. God uses people. Now, if you're, I always like as we move along, I always have one major theme, you know, that I just beat over the head until I crush it. This idea that God uses people. God uses his people, doesn't he? The Bible clearly tells us that he's angry with the sinner every day. In the New Testament, it tells us that the, the mind and the spirit of the carnal man, someone who's not saved, 
It says that their mind is at enmity with God. That means they're enemies. They can't understand each other. Jesus talked about not even be able to, being able to see the kingdom of God until you are born again. Something, when your spirit is reborn, you can see, you can understand the kingdom of God. This is why he has to use his people. So God uses people, but let's narrow it down, get a little more focused, a little more specific. God uses his people. He uses believers. We're, we're going to cinch this thing down. We're getting closer and closer to you and closer and closer to me. He uses people. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. The story of a man who had a lot on his plate, Moses. If you would ever like to read and be impressed with the the task that God had for one person, read the life of Moses. First First of all, we should understand where Moses came from. At the time he was born, the the Pharaoh in Egypt wanted the male children drowned in the Nile River. And Moses' mother would have none of it. She built a small little ark to hold this baby, put him in the, the Nile River, and the daughter of Pharaoh finds him through a miracle. Something gets her in her heart. She wants to keep this baby. She takes him in to raise him in the palace. And she even tells one of the little girls, Go out and get me a Hebrew woman to nurse this kid. And she goes out and gets Moses' wife, excuse me, Moses' mother. Moses' mother, who was supposed to lose the child, now not only gets to keep him, but gets to nurse him. Not a bad little favor. Gets to nurse him in the king's palace. And Moses grows up in that. So his life is spared. He came from the, the worst. He was supposed to die four minutes into birth. He's now being raised in the king's palace. Some circumstances happen. He ends up killing an Egyptian guy, and he runs out into the wilderness. And this is where we find him. He's out in the wilderness. He's married a lady. He is following or looking after his father-in-law's flock in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. This is amazing. Now, you know the story. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. Why is this angel coming? Why does God want, need Moses? What is he asking him to do? He's asking him to go back to Pharaoh, to go get his people and bring them out of slavery. Now, my first thought, if I'm Moses now, Lord, you just sent an angel into this bush and it's on fire. It's talking to me. I can't do that. Maybe I ought to send that angel down to Pharaoh and kick his rear end. He'd do a lot easier, a lot quicker. It'll take me five days to walk there. He can be there like that. There won't even be a fight. It'll be over. And God doesn't do that. Not only does God not do that here in Exodus 3, God never does that. Yes, angels do appear in our Bible. and This is one of the reasons I specifically chose this example. When angels do appear, what is their goal? What's their Behavior. What's their job? They come and they talk to God's people, delivering a message. They talk to God's people and make sure there's no miscommunication. Just in case you thought you had a bad dream, it wasn't a bad dream. The angel actually comes and he 
speaks out loud. He talks out of a burning bush to grab Moses' attention. Look at what he tells him. Verse 4, The Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called unto him out of the midst of the bush, and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. This is what God is looking for in almost all circumstances. Somebody who is present. Moses was available. And yes, we preachers, we kind of maybe twist and use this as, a, uh, as an opportunity to, to prove the point. I'm not exactly sure what Moses meant by just saying, here am I. He probably had to know God knew where he was. He put the burning bush four feet from him. But Moses answers, I'm here. Verse 5, he tells him he's on holy ground. And look down at verse 7. The Lord said, now, as we read verse 7, I want you to keep in mind who is talking. I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrow. Who has seen their affliction, who has heard their cry, and who knows of their sorrow? This is God speaking. Moses on the backside of the desert, he I, with the communication of the day, there is probably no way for sure he knows exactly what's going on in Egypt. But when God comes to talk to him, he says, I've seen their affliction, I've heard their cry, and I know their sorrows. If I'd have been Moses, I'm leaning back on my rock thinking, I'm listening, you, you're describing the, all the things, God, that you have seen, that you've heard, that you know about. So far, Moses is involved in none of this. None of it. Next verse. And I, I, God, am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I'd have been thinking, this is going to be something to watch. God is, he himself, that's what he's saying. I'm coming down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10. Come now therefore, and I will send thee. Good Lord, I would have stopped him right there. Father, you're the one that saw their affliction, you heard their cry, and you know their sorrow. Why? And you already started verse 8 by saying, you're going to go deliver them. How come you turn this around now and say, I'm sending you, Moses? Wasn't Moses' perception that saw that they were in affliction, that heard their cry, that knew their sorrow? God did. And here's what we learn about the God that we serve. The will of God in the earth. What God wants to have happen. How does he make it come to pass? Talks to his people. He sent an angel for a very specific reason. To make sure there was no miscommunication. See, angels always get people's attention in the Bible. Always. They usually fall down on their face. They're shaking in fear. Because an angel's natural appearance is one of enormous strength. Psalm 103 tells us that the angels are exceeding in strength. And it is their duty to carry out the word of the Lord. He gives them a message, down they go. When they deliver their message, there can be no misunderstanding. Nobody can say, I'm not sure what God wants me to do. Wrong. 
They know exactly. Verse 10, I am sending you. Now, is he sending him down to the gas station to get a candy bar? He is sending him to Pharaoh. Even today, in the world you and I live in, we don't have Pharaohs anymore, but even that word immediately conjures up what? The most powerful position on the planet, Pharaoh. When the Pharaohs lived, there was nobody more powerful. And God tells Moses, a man, as you learn in some verses later, he can't talk well. He stutters. He knows he can't talk well. He's self-conscious about it. He says, my brother Aaron speaks. Great. Send him. And God says, hold on. I'll send him with you. He'll talk for you. But I'm sending you. And Moses goes back to Pharaoh. Single-handedly, with a rod in his hand. And This is the, the confidence-building part. God had given Moses a rod. And he told him, you throw that sucker down. He did. And that thing turned into a serpent. He said, pick it up by the tail. He picked it by the tail, and it turned back into a rod. He said, put your hand in your shirt, in your bosom, pull it out. It's leprous. Not a good thing back then. There was no cures. Put it back in and pull it out again, and it was perfect flesh again. And God said, these are the signs I give you to show people that I sent you. When Moses gets there, and the Israelites are gathered together, and they want to know, who, how we, why are we supposed to follow you? Moses showed them those signs. And those people immediately signed up. Let's go with him. His rod turns into a snake. He can make leprosy appear and disappear like that. I think God's talking through him. God works through people. Always, always works through people. Now, it's a neat story. And I'm trying to describe the story, but at the same time, keep your mind from just focusing on the details of the story. I want to back up. And think about how big of a project God gave one man. How big of a project did God give to Noah? To build an ark to save all of life on earth. One man. And of course, as we know, the ark didn't leak. And Moses did get these people out of Egypt. And the lions didn't get to Daniel. And David's stone, it just found its way right between the eyes of Goliath. God uses people. We sometimes read these stories and we think, well, there's something amazing about those people. There's something amazing about the God in those people. And in every example doesn't matter if it's Moses, Daniel, David, Joshua, whoever. It will include this phrase throughout their stories. And God was with them. I think the way that God wrote his Bible as just an objective reader, when you read it all, we're supposed to understand, look at what God does through people. Now, as we know, he doesn't do this through unbelievers. But it doesn't mean that he needs perfect people. These people had all kinds of problems. As we just read here, Moses had just killed a guy. He's, that's why he's where he is. He's fleeing. And while he's there, this angel tells him, the people that sought your life because of the ones that know that you killed this guy, they're gone. They're not around anymore. God always does that. He, he soothes a person of their past. 
You will not find God bringing back up to Moses the fact that he murdered a guy. You don't find God talking to Paul saying you're screwing up just like you used to when you used to imprison Christians. He doesn't talk to David and say, you're a scoundrel just like you used to be when you were a womanizer. God never brings up people's past once he deals with it. See, but there's some good news in that. It's kind of shouting time for us when you read that. That's why he's the best God to serve. He paid such an enormous price to cleanse us that once that blood of Jesus is applied to our past, God will never bring it up. If you find that happening in your life, you know something immediately. That's not God. If there's a voice, if there's something in your life, if you have repented over something, it is not God that brings that back up. He did not crucify his son just so that he could put guilt on a person. The exact opposite. If you've repented of it, if you've confessed your sin, God is so faithful to cleanse us from all of it. He doesn't bring that back up. He wants us as strong as possible. That's why the New Testament teaches us about equipping the saints, giving us strength, becoming strong in the power of His might, teaching us the power of His Word so that we are fit for His service when we get out that door. Because we're, as Jesus said, I send you as lambs, sheep among wolves. But He does send us out there. Sends us out there so that when the things work out in our favor, we realize, that's right, I am a sheep. I was surrounded by wolves and they didn't touch me. What does that do? That's confidence. There's no other conclusion other than God brought me through that. That happens a few times and you start, <laughs> bring it. If, if those wolves can't touch me then, they're not going to get me tomorrow. That's one of the things, miracles in a person's life, that's what it does. We are, the Bible even teaches, we're supposed to bring that stuff with us. We remember, and God even showed that to his people. They set up memorials. We remember the things that God has done for us. It makes us stronger when we get down the road. True story. Turn in your Bible. Let's go to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Here's an, another good example of a man who, had, who knew that God worked through people. If you were raised in church, you know the story of Joseph quite well. Joseph was one of the younger sons of Jacob. Those older boys were very jealous of him because he used to talk a lot about the dreams that God had given him. His brothers get very jealous, angry with him. They sell him to Ishmaelites, and as far as they know, he's going to be dead. They sell their younger brother in that manner. And they live the next 20-some years, 30 years, thinking he's dead, he's gone. And they let their father believe a lie that some animal got him. Well, while he's in Egypt, some terrible things happen. He's working for Potiphar's wife. She lies about him. And because of that, he goes to a dungeon. And Down in the dungeon, his ability to translate to decipher dreams that God has given him, that ability. He is still working on that. He does that for someone down there. He translates, he deciphers their dream. That person, one of those people, goes up back to the palace where Pharaoh is. Word of his ability about what he did in the dungeon comes to Pharaoh's ear because Pharaoh has just had a dream. 
Pharaoh has dreamed something that paints a picture of seven good years followed by seven terrible years. They bring Joseph up. He interprets a dream saying, there's going to be seven years of plenty and after that there's going to be seven years of famine where nothing grows. And if you don't store up the food, we have major, major troubles during the seven years. So God, through Pharaoh, Pharaoh tells Joseph, you're now in charge. And he puts Joseph in charge of storing up, buying up all the food during the seven good years. And during the seven bad years, people need food to the point that his father, who thinks is dead, and his brothers, who thinks he's dead, come to Egypt to buy corn. And when they do, they have to come before him, Joseph. Joseph has the opportunity now here in chapter 45 and in verse 7. This is what Joseph tells his brethren once he is known to them that he's not dead, that he's actually alive and very powerful. God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The first two words, first three words in that verse, he recognized that God sent him. Now, it would have been very easy to be bitter coming out of the dungeon. And through all of that, Joseph understands this, that God uses people. He, used, he understood that to the point that Joseph looks around and he realizes, God used me to save my brethren, the house of Jacob, that lineage that is going to produce the Messiah someday. God sent me, and even though I went through some tough stuff, look at the glory that I have. God used me to save the entire family of Jacob. To save for a posterity. And remember, the Old Testament shows us that the, the basic reason for this nation of Israel that started with Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob's time is so that one day the Savior, the Messiah, will be born through their loins, their lineage. Joseph recognizes God used me, the one person, to save them all alive so that during the famine there'd be something to eat, they'd come down here, and we could save them. God uses people. He especially uses people that understand this. He especially uses people that understand that if you get in God's will, and you're not going to know everything, you're going to have questions for God. You're always going to have questions. Look at the father of our faith, Abraham. The Bible tells us in Genesis 18 that he asked God, you promised me a son, I'm now 99, and there's nothing here. Nothing. It's worth pausing right there to realize that God chose a 99-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife to do what? To give the physical birth to his nation. You know how God uses people? Look who he uses. Abraham was 99, Sarah was 90. The Bible tells us that she was past the age for women, the age of life. She could not have children anymore. And God used them to give the physical birth to his nation, Isaac, then Jacob, and the tribes. God uses people. All throughout the Bible, the wonderful examples of military conquest of David. 
Those are neat stories, but you know what God's doing? He's preserving his people. And he uses a shepherd boy when David is a teenager to kill Goliath. He uses people. God uses Samson. Some people don't even like to read about it because there's a lot of death. But God needed to preserve those people. They were being oppressed, trying to be enslaved, and God used Samson to destroy their enemies. There's a verse, and let's turn there now. Go to Psalm chapter 115. There's a verse that at least to me somewhat cements this idea how God looks at this earth of ours. Psalm chapter 115, and look at verse 16. I think there's a lot of truth in this verse. Psalm 115, verse 16, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. If you like words the way I do, there's some very interesting words that need to be addressed there. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's. That's possession, that's ownership. And I don't think anybody would argue that God also owns the earth. He does. But you know what he did in his ownership and his possession? Because it's his, he can give it to anybody he wants to. And this verse seems to indicate what? That the earth, he has at least given some authority on what happens down here to who? People. It clearly says that the heavens are his. We know that he created the earth. But after he created, he put Adam there and he said what? You have dominion over this. You have dominion over the fish, the creeping things, the cattle. You are in charge. Now, you can expand on that and generalize that, I think, a little bit to realize this is what God, why God expects things on this earth. If they're going to improve, who's, how is it going to improve? How are problems going to be solved? And how, are, how is oppression going to be stopped? There's probably, at least not yet, going to be a legion of angels come down to do it. A little hint for ten minutes from now. That time will come, but not just yet. Not until you get to the very end do you see angels coming down to this earth and physically changing the earth. This verse says, God gave the earth to people. There there is at least some truth in that, and I don't want to stretch this too far. Man does have some authority on this earth, doesn't he? You want to know why there's problems, say, in with ISIS? Because there's some very evil people there. You know why there's some problems in some places in the Middle East where there's constant war? Because there's some bad people there. Do you know why there is peace and prosperity in some places in the earth? Because there's some good people in some of those places. People. God uses people. And he does have a plan in this earth. And when he wants to affect that plan, you see he convinces, he talks to people. The Bible says that one time David went and encouraged himself in the Lord. What do you think he encouraged himself about? I don't think you can read it any other way, David's life, that David knew the design of his whole life from the time he was a little boy. He was out in the fields. He was singing to the Lord, praising. 
He was spending time with God so that when it came time for him to be put on the stage with Goliath, he was prepared. He used what God had given him. And he destroyed somebody that wanted to kill the Israelites. And he, his whole life was that. David was a warrior. David was a warrior. For what purpose? To preserve those people. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. People have a responsibility to find a way to govern this earth and to make sure that certain, as, long, as much as we can prevent it from happening, the certain negative, horrible things in this earth should not happen because the right people should stand up and protect. The right people should stand up and do the right thing. Until a certain event takes place. Throughout these scriptures and these books of the Bible, every single time except for a handful of maybe two or three that I can find, there's two or three exceptions. Otherwise, those angels always come to one of God's people and they give instructions. I'm with you. I want you to go destroy the Midianites, Gideon. God comes to David. I want you to throw off the Philistines. God comes to Samson. I want you to destroy the Philistines. All these things happen through man, until you get to the end of your Bible. And at the end of the Bible, God describes in Revelation how his people are removed off the earth. And then, what do you start seeing in every single verse in Revelation? Angels. There's 73 times in the book of Revelation where an angel is pouring out wrath into the earth. Where an angel is, the Bible says, smiting a third of the earth's population, where an angel is turning the water into blood, where an angel is smiting the earth with famine. It's angel after angel after angel. The angels are always present when God's extreme wrath, His extreme punishment is poured out. And that's why the book of Revelation holds all those verses about Revelation. I want to end with one last verse in Galatians chapter 4. We're talking about God using people. And the biggest problem God ever had on this earth was redeeming mankind and getting mankind back in relationship with Him. Making a way for us to transverse or be cleansed from sin so that we could be back in His presence. How could he possibly do that? Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, But when the fullness of time was come, that means there was a timing mechanism, that God had a certain time set for this to happen. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son to be made of a woman. Put another verse, excuse me, another phrase to that. What does it mean to be made of a woman? Simply another way of saying you're, you're born as a human. You're part of the human race. We all got here the same way, except for Adam and Eve. We were all born from our mother. Everybody gets into the earth from the seed of a man into the womb of a woman, and that's how you get here. When God it came time for him, this verse tells us, for him to redeem mankind, he used a man. His son 
put on flesh, became a person. And God in the flesh, God, look at what, let's, I should read the rest of this verse. Verse 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, that means made a human, made under the law. That means he, he had to live under the same laws you and I did. As a baby, there was the law of nourishment. When he was hungry, he cried. He lived under the same laws. If he would have sinned, he would have been guilty of breaking the law the way any of us did. That's why he lived. It's so important to understand he lived without sin. He never broke the law ever. That's why he was the perfect lamb to be sacrificed with no blemishes. Verse 5, he did that to redeem them that were under the law. The only way God, according to his word, tells us that he got man back in right relationship with him to destroy sin, the power of sin to redeem mankind was coming as a man. He was born of a woman, made under the law. I don't pretend to know everything about God, his Bible. It does seem to point that, that mankind has a certain dominion on this earth. And God works through mankind to affect what goes on here. He doesn't just yet send angels down there to destroy a certain nation that's evil, a certain ruler that is barbaric. That time is coming. At the very end of the age, when mankind, when his people are raptured out of here and removed, then it does start saying that the time for repentance is over. And then the angels do come and do what Jesus said in Matthew 13. They come to separate the wheat from the tares. It says that the angels go and they bind the tares, the weeds, in bundles to burn them. And it gathers his wheat into the barn. Jesus said that those angels are reapers. Until that time gets here, you and I have a great authority. Now that, that, that can hit you as a great responsibility, and it should. But also, if God's going to change it through people, you know what he's going to give people? The ability, the power to accomplish it. He's not going to hold us responsible for something that we don't have power to do it. You talk about encouraging. That lets me know when I look out throughout the earth and I see a problem, God has given somebody the ability to change that. It may be me, it may not be me. Mine might be next door, mine might be in the next town, whatever. God has given somebody on this earth power to change that. It'd be great if more of mankind thought that way about what took place on the earth. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that the, the things we've heard would give us confidence, that would give us a boldness in you and the power of your might. Lord, we pray that, that you would be with Pastor and Tiff as they travel, that you would keep them safe, protect them, that you would prosper them with all earthly and spiritual blessings. Watch over and protect them in everything that they do. And Lord, thank you for sending them to us. In Jesus' name, amen.